morning, good news. How are you? Good. My name is Nicholas, and uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture and bringing the message today. Would you stand with me? We're going to read from Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross, laid him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there followed with him a multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about the story of Jesus and we think about the cross, help our ears to hear, our eyes to see what you have, what you have done, and what you have accomplished through the cross, Father God. Open our hearts to learn new and to hear afresh, Father God, the story of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Stories have the power to shape us, right? We love a good story. Think about... um, your favorite book, your favorite movie, um, and, and how much you love it and how you want to just be drawn into it, right? That's what this story is. This story is, is a story that can shape us. It can change the way we view the world. 
And for the last 2,000 years, the story of Jesus has been shaping and changing people's lives in many different ways. Lots of different thoughts and opinions, love, hate, faith, doubt about this story that we are reading. And how we hear a story is very important because depending on uh, how we hear the story or when we hear the story, it may shape us and change us in a different sort of way. Now, think about that movie or that book that you love so much. And now imagine you had heard that 10 years earlier or maybe 10 years later. How would you experience that differently? Because we have a context and the way that we hear a story matters and the way a story is told matters. And for the last year and a half at Good News Church, we've been slowly walking through a particular perspective of the story of Jesus as told by the physician named Luke. And whether we want to admit it or not, our own uh, our own context, our own social influences, our own personal experiences, even our denominational doctrines in church history all shape how we hear the story of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Our, our church is named after it. The, 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 the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Right. And, and what is the gospel? Like, how would you summarize it? A few weeks ago in our small group, the question was asked, uh, how would you summarize the gospel in like one sentence, right? Like, and I think for most of us, uh, we've heard, we've heard a particular story summarized in a particular way. Um, see if this sounds familiar. Um, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be with God in heaven. Right? That sounds pretty good. We've heard that. I've said that. I think, I think that sounds like a, a, a summation of the gospel that we've heard. But what I want to challenge us today is that that is only one small part of the gospel. Now, I know you all are wondering why I have golf clubs on stage. So uh, I'm not, I, I don't play golf myself, but my brother-in-law, Tom, he loaned me his golf clubs. Tom, would you mind coming up here um, and help me out? So Tom plays golf. He's, he enjoys a, a golf game, right? That's right. I have a few opportunities to play. All right. Yeah, you have kind of like a, a corporate executive job. I imagine that maybe you even get to do a little work in golf at the same time. Occasionally, we'll sneak out during a weekday. All right. Cool. Cool. That sounds good. Nothing wrong with that. Now, there's a lot going on here in this golf bag. There's, I see a, a, a lot happening. Why do you have to have so many clubs? Well, there's so many different shots. Depending on your skill level, you could, shoot, you could have 60 strokes during a round up to 150. So there's a lot of different shots. Wow, that sounds, that's, that's wild. All right. Well, you know, as you were just saying that, I just remembered, I, I do play golf a little bit. I've played a couple times. Uh, last year, actually, I took uh, my kids out for a little putt-putt golf, and uh, I did pretty well. I, I made it through the windmill on the second try. So hold your applause. It's, you know, You've got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to, well, you know. <laughs> and I think, I think this is the one I'm most familiar with. Which one is this called? That's called the putter. The putter, the putter. All right. Now, now I've, I've only done a little bit, but I would love to level up my game. Maybe you could teach me a thing or two. What do you call, what do you call that thing where you take the, the ball, you put it on the tee, and then you hit it super far? Typically, that's the driver. Okay, okay. Can you teach me how to do that? Sure. Okay, can you do it with this club? Well, that's not going to work great, Nicholas. Why? That, that club is designed to roll the ball on the ground a short distance. Okay. You know, so, in most holes, hmm. there's not good stuff in front of the tee box. Oh, okay. So I can't use the putter to, to, to hit it super far. That's not going to work out great. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for the golf lesson, Tom. I appreciate it. Everybody give him a hand.
So when we talk about the gospel and we talk about the cross and what it does, it's a little bit like this. There's a lot of different ways to talk about the cross and the gospel and what's going on at the cross. And, and for some of us, we've only ever used one particular story. We only have this story of that Jesus died as a sacrifice for my sins so that I can be forgiven and go to heaven with him. Right. And, 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 and so the problem is that sometimes there's a particular use for that particular story. But there's so much, so many other things going on that if we were trying to explain the entire gospel in that particular story, it's like using a putter to do 18 rounds, 18 holes. See, I'm not a golfer. I have no idea. And for some people, they think that this is the whole story or the only story or the only story that matters. And if that's our perspective, then we're missing a lot of amazing things about what the gospel is and what the cross does. And then for some people, they've incorrectly used that story. And they've started misusing and abusing it to where the story that some people have heard about the gospel is more like that there is an angry God who hates sinners so much that he requires a blood sacrifice in their place. And that's not the good news. That's not the gospel. And as we have looked through the book of Luke, that's not what Luke is about at all. And there's a very different story that's being told in the book of Luke. So we're going to put this away because I won't be needing it today. So what is that? As we've been walking through the book of Luke, what are the themes that have come up over and over that we can look at and point to and ultimately connect to the cross? Because that's what I want to do. We want to connect the story that we've seen so far to the story that we read today about the cross. So there's a couple, only a couple that I have time to highlight today, but, um, but uh, I want to talk about them. The first, the first uh, theme that has been coming up that Luke keeps bringing up over and over and over has to do with a particular people group that, that Luke is telling the story of Jesus, but he's connecting it to another story, to another people, to, to, uh, to a particular people group. And who is that? Israel. Israel. That's right. Over and over throughout the book of Luke. We see Luke connecting what Jesus is doing to what has happened before in the entire Old Testament. The references are everywhere. And he's retelling the story of, of Israel and what God has done for that people in the past. I'll give you just a few quick examples. If you want to look these up later and read these, you can. I'm not going to read them all. But uh, I just want you to see the picture of what Luke is doing in the narrative to connect Jesus' story to Israel's story. So really early on in Luke 3, we get a story of, uh, of Jesus' cousin, John. And he's a, a crazy long-haired hippie prophet that walks out into the desert and just starts shouting and preaching. And people come follow him. And he's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And his, he's, he's eating bugs and he's wearing clothes that are ceremonially unclean. He has... No regard for cultural norms. And he has no regard for the current religious system. He's actually preaching a message of judgment. He's saying that God is putting an axe to the tree. Something is coming. Something is happening. And judgment is coming. And so we need to repent. And then Jesus comes along. And he says, I want to be baptized by that guy. 
what he's doing is awesome. And it's actually really interesting because then if you go and you look at all the times when Jesus is calling out the Pharisees, he's calling out the religious leaders, right? It has echoes of this message in John. And John has been quoting Isaiah the entire time. And then the next story immediately after the baptism is that Jesus, he, he walks out into the wilderness and, and he's tempted. And how long, how many days is Jesus tempted for? 40. And how many years did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40. Interesting connection. And then a little bit later, Jesus goes and he, he selects some apprentices to follow him around. How many dudes did Jesus pick? 12. How many nations are there in Israel? 12. It's almost like it's telling us something, right? There's connections everywhere to, to the story of Jesus and Israel's story. And then one of my favorites in Luke 9, Jesus walks up to a mountain He takes three of his favorite disciples with him. And then God shows up and Jesus turns dazzling white. It's the transfiguration. And then two guys that have been dead for centuries suddenly appear right next to Jesus. Anybody know who they are? Moses and Elijah, right? These two like pillars of of Israel's story representing the law and the prophets. And then a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son. Listen to him. It's everywhere. And we can see it over and over and over. Jesus is quoting the prophets and he's, he's referencing the story of Israel. And this really, this comes to its fullest understanding in Luke 22. And Pastor Drew preached it a couple weeks ago. And what Jesus does, he has a meal with his disciples and he celebrates a holiday and connects that holiday to what he's about to do on the cross. What's the name of the holiday? Passover. Yeah. And Passover is a remembrance of a particular time in Israel's history that has stuck with them for for their entire life. And that's the story of the Exodus. Because what Jesus has been doing this whole time is a new Exodus. And when he goes to the cross, when he's preparing his disciples to help them understand what the cross is all about and what the gospel is, he connects it to the story of the Exodus and to the Passover. Because the Passover was a night and a holiday to to remember when God brought judgment on the oppressive powers of Egypt. He protected his people and then brought them out of slavery. And Jesus says, that's what this is all about. That's the gospel. I am bringing judgment on the powers and bringing my people out of slavery. Now, what I think is kind of interesting, and this is just me, I think it's interesting that the Passover is not actually a celebration for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is important, and there's another holiday for that. But the Passover is about God redeeming, liberating his people. And that's what Jesus, that's when Jesus chooses to go to the cross, is at Passover. So this is the story that, that we've been seeing the whole time. This is the big theme, that, that Jesus, the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story as he's bringing about the new exodus. But then there's another theme that we've been seeing over and over and over throughout the book. And I've asked this question before, and you might be sick of it by now, but in the book of Luke, this is the last time I'm going to be able to ask it. What is the number one thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else in his ministry? 
the kingdom. I heard it over here. You got it. Nailed it. You win. All right. A for a for this class. All right. Jesus was obsessed with talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew talks about it. Everywhere he goes, he's announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. We see this over and over in Luke 8 and Luke 9. It says that he went about from town to town, healing the sick and announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom is here. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is among you. He starts preaching about what the kingdom looks like. And in Luke 13 and 16, he's, he's telling parables and, and stories and teaching. This is what it looks like. And it's this, it's this really complicated concept because apparently this whole world is being run a particular way. But Jesus is coming on the scene and announcing there's a new way. There's a new kingdom. There's a, there's, there, there's a new way to think about things. And it's the kingdom of heaven and it's here right now. Now, when we talk about this, it's a, it's a little tricky. And, and I know that sometimes it feels like it's a very, you know, conceptual concept. But, but I want to do a couple of things to illustrate what the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of heaven is. And, uh, and, and how the Bible talks about it. So... Oftentimes, when we talk about heaven, we talk about it like it is a long way off. And that the goal, the gospel, the main theme must be to get us from here on earth all the way to heaven. For many people, they think that's the whole point. That's the goal. It's like to get me from earth into heaven. The problem is that's not how the Bible actually talks about heaven. When the Bible talks about heaven, it's God's space. It's wherever God is. And, and when Jesus talks about heaven, it's not a long way off. It's right here. It's so close. It's among you. And so, so what I think would be a better illustration, if we think about earth as our space, right? And we think about heaven as God's space, The direction is, is not to get us from here to here. That's not the big idea of the goal. The goal is to get heaven into earth. And that's why he says, pray this way. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then there are these times, these moments, when earth and heaven are overlapping where God's presence is fully known in earth's space, right? And we see this in the tabernacle. We see this in the temple. And we see it pretty much everywhere that Jesus is. Because that's what he's doing. He's walking around announcing, it's coming. It's here. It's happening right now. And it's right before your eyes. And then what Jesus is doing, he embodies the fullness of heaven. And then he goes around healing the sick. And preaching good news for the poor. And, and recovery of sight for the blind. And he's bringing heaven into earth. And the ultimate goal, the big story of what God is doing, is that he wants to transform and change this world. To where the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. New heavens and new earth. Where God is reconciling his world to himself. This is the goal. This is the story of the gospel. And there's a phrase we've been using to talk about what it looks like right here, right now, right? So that's the goal. But, but what does it look like now? We've been talking about this, this phrase, the upside-down kingdom. 
And the upside down kingdom is, is this way to talk about what Jesus is doing. He keeps saying things that sound like the opposite of what we expect, right? Uh, he keeps, he keeps talking about, uh, 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 the, the reversal of fortunes. He talks about the poor being blessed. He t- says the greatest are actually the least and the least become the greatest. That in the kingdom of God, it's like a tiny little mustard seed. It looks so small, but it grows up and becomes something huge where the entire world can see it. So this way of seeing the world is, is sort of upside down as Jesus sees it. And it looks kind of like this. On the surface, when we look at the world, it's run this way. The powers stay powerful. The rich stay rich. The oppressive stay oppressive. And the poor just stay on the bottom. And Jesus is bringing this radical message. No, no, no. At the same time of everything that you see, the normal way of living, there is an alternative kingdom going on underneath the surface. And God is doing something. And what looks right to you is actually upside down. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here. And it's happening right in the midst. And we see this over and over. In fact, we see this idea of, of reversal, of things being the opposite the way, of the way they should, right back to the beginning of the story. Think about Jesus' birth. Think about the way that the Son of God came into the world. He came in the humblest way possible. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger, Right? And his story wasn't announced to royalty to be spread across the nation. It was told to shepherds. The angels appeared to shepherds, the lowest in society, to announce the good news. So this entire story is telling us something is reversed. Something is not the way that we think it is. We really see it in Mary's song in in Luke 1. I would encourage you later on this week... Take some time and read Mary's song of praise because it talks about this reversal where the, where the powerful will be made low and the, and, the, and the poor will be lifted up. And then Jesus, at his sermon on the plain, when he's, when he's preaching about how, how this whole thing works, says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hurting, the broken. They're going to be healed. They're going to be lifted up and woe to the powers. Woe to you who, who have it all and think you have it all. The powers will be brought down. The low will be lifted up. This is the upside down kingdom. And what does this look like in our life? Like, what, okay, so, so give me practical examples. It means that Jesus is going around and he's saying to average person who is sick. You are blessed because you can be made whole. And that's what this does. That's what the cross does. It gives us a hope that we can be made whole. It means that, that when we are out at our jobs and we see someone that is hurting and broken, the kingdom of God opportunity is right there to get into their lives and bless them, to pour into them, to lift them up. That's the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see is that even when we look at death, the end of life, The kingdom of God says there is hope. The cross is paradoxically the place where God becomes king of his upside down kingdom. I want to look at the story we just read 
I'm going to go back just <clears throat> briefly to chapter 22. Jesus has been arrested and he's put on trial before, uh, before the religious leaders. He's brought before them and, uh, and they lead him away and they say, if you are the Christ, if you're the king, the anointed one, tell us. But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. What he's doing right there, by the way, he's, he's actually quoting the prophet Jeremiah from this time right before God brought judgment on the house of Israel, on, on Judah. And don't think that that was lost on the religious leaders. They, it's like, we see what you're doing. We know what you're doing. That's probably just getting the matter. And then Jesus goes and he quotes Daniel. But from this moment on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's quoting Daniel 7, which is this wild dream that Daniel has of this, this picture of this son of man. This phrase, son of man, is, is, the, is the phrase that Jesus liked to refer to himself the most. And in Daniel, it's this picture of a human being who has been exalted to a place of royalty. And that's what Jesus is constantly referencing over and over. And here he says, it's from this moment on, you're going to see the son of man sitting next to the right hand of the power of God. And then what happens? They say, they all said to him, so are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. It's this tricky little phrase. He just doesn't say yes. He says, you say that I am. He answers in the affirmative, but he doesn't say what they want him to say. So they get really angry and, they, and then they take him to Pilate and they trump up a bunch of ridiculous charges against him. And, and, and ultimately then Pilate says, this, this doesn't sound like any of this is true. Can you just tell me, are, are, are you the king of the Jews? And he says the exact same thing. You've said it. You say that I am. And throughout the, the next couple scenes, as, as Jesus goes, is sent from Pilate to Herod, and then back to Pilate, we see something going on that appears like Jesus is, I mean, Jesus is in chains, right? He doesn't look like he's in control of the situation. But when he encounters Pilate, Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. And when he goes to Herod, Herod just sends him back to Pilate. And ultimately, Pilate has nothing to do, wants to have nothing to do with it. He says, this guy's innocent. I, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to give it over to you. See what's happening. Jesus isn't answering the way that they want him to. He's, he's controlling the situation. He has the authority. And this is what it looks like when God becomes king. He says, from this moment on, what you're about to see going through the trial, going through the crucifixion, being nailed to the cross, that's what it looks like when God becomes king. It's the upside down kingdom. It's a reversal of the way that we think about the world. Because that's what it looks like for God to rule. It's to give himself for us, right? He doesn't become king by making a lot of money making a lot of friends and uh, political influences by climbing up the, the, the power chain. He doesn't, he doesn't become king by, through, through war and violence. He becomes king in the paradoxical way of going to the cross. Because when we give up our life, 
that's when we actually gain. And that's what's going on on the cross. The band can come up. There's, there's, another, there's one more thing that happens through this upside-down kingdom. For many of us, our greatest fear is death, is, is dealing with death, either dying ourselves or, or, or suffering the loss of someone else. The incredible claim of the cross is that through this event, the power of death is defeated. That somehow in this upside down kingdom, by Jesus going to the cross, he actually defeats death. He defeats sin. He defeats the powers by giving up of his life. And the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate next week, and the ascension the week after that, that's the proof. That's the sign that there is hope, there is life, but it all happens here. The cross is the paradoxical moment when God becomes king and defeats the power of death by entering into it fully. That's the good news. And in fact, the early church, this way of talking about the gospel was the primary way that, that, that they, they would refer to the gospel. It wasn't just Jesus died for our sins so we can go to heaven. There's something there, right? Forgiveness of sins is good, but it's the, the forgiveness of sins is just focused on us. And what we want to see in the gospel is what God is doing for the entirety of creation for the entire world, for all people, right? This good news is that he is king of his kingdom. And because of that, it changes the way we live. Irenaeus, uh, early church father, said that God came to earth so that he might kill sin and deprive death of its power. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, says, the cross is not a sign of death, it is the sign of the end of death. In Colossians 2, 14, referring to Jesus and the cross, it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross is where this happens. The cross is where death is defeated. The cross is where sin is defeated. The cross is where God brings judgment on the oppressive powers in our life and takes his people out of slavery to a new creation. And he's doing that for the whole world. And as we take this time to receive communion, and as we go into this next week, think about the story of Jesus. Think about what it does. What's the story that you have been told? 
What's the story you've heard about what the cross does, about why Jesus had to die, why he came to this earth, and how has it shaped you? For some of you, you may be dealing with sickness. You may be dealing with depression. You may be enslaved to any number of things. And the good news is that God has brought you out of that already. All we have to do is enter into it. Jesus says, repent and believe. Believe the good news. And then for others of us, when we go into our jobs and we we see someone that is hurting and broken, we need to look at those opportunities and see kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, it's right there. And when we see the poor and the broken, those who are marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner in our life, we need to reach out to them and treat them as Jesus did. Kingdom of God. This is what the cross does.
workers would come forward. service, if you want to stay, if you want to worship, if you, um, but especially if you are enslaved to something, you might be enslaved to sin. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this message and you need forgiveness. God can forgive you right now. That's what the cross is for. Maybe you're enslaved to something personal in your life. Maybe you need healing, freedom from depression. I want you to come. I want you to pray with those here. After we dismiss. And for the rest of us, I want us this week to think about this story. Think about the stories that shape us and how we can enter in and see the story in a new light. See the cross as a victory. See the cross as the moment when God becomes king. This Friday, we're going to have a, uh, a Good Friday service at 6.30 downstairs in the student auditorium. I would encourage you this week to prepare your hearts. We're going into, into Holy Week, into celebrating Easter next Sunday. But throughout this whole week, think about this story. We're going to post some additional verses and thoughts and resources on the website about this story, about how what the cross does. What the, what the story of Jesus and how, how this story connects to Luke's story. And I would encourage you every day, we have different verses for each day. Go and read those verses and think about the story. And this Friday, come and celebrate what has been done on the cross. And then next weekend, next Sunday, we're going to celebrate resurrection. Because the resurrection is the hope. The resurrection is what this is all going towards. The Christ is the first of those who have been raised from the dead. It's the proof. It's the sign that the cross is where God becomes king. So I'm going to pray for us. If you want prayer, you can come forward. Father God, I thank you for your story, for your cross, for what you have done and what you continue to do in people's lives through it. I pray that we would be shaped and formed into your image as we learn this story and that we would see your purposes, what you are doing in the world through the cross, leading us into a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen.